Maybe you've seen professional development sessions about digital portfolios or blogs and thought, that's not relevant to my classes. In this episode, we look at one example where blogging has been used to share students' progress on business analytics projects with an audience. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Burko. Katie is an assistant professor of management information sciences at the University of Delaware. She is also the host of the On Cultivating Student Engagement in Higher Ed podcast. Welcome, Katie. Well, thanks so much for having me. I am a huge fan of your podcast. And we're fans of yours. Our teas are? I am drinking tea today. I just made a cup of something called Scandinavian Detox, which is an herbal caffeine-free blend. And I'm drinking ginger peach green tea. Oh, back to an old favorite. Me too. I'm back to the Scottish afternoon tea. Just delivered. We've invited you here to discuss how you've been using blogs in your business analytics class. Could you first describe the class in which you're doing this? Absolutely. So I teach business analytics at the University of Delaware. And the course that we're talking about today is a reformulation of a traditional second course in statistics. And it's for sophomores and juniors. So this is a required course in the business school for most business majors. For some, it's their last statistics class they'll ever take. And for others, it's creating the opportunity to introduce perhaps more study in analytics. There's a wide range of students in the class, lots of different majors, lots of different interests. And the topics that we focus on are sort of three-pronged instead of a traditional two-pronged approach. So we focus on introducing a programming language, which is always a topic that introduces some fear for many students. We talk about statistical modeling, which also brings some fear. And the third, the part that introduces the reformulation of the class is the communication around the results of building a statistical model and the potential impact on the research question and what the potential is for using these analytics. We really want to connect the students to the impact that their analytics could have on an organization. Statistics isn't necessarily the first topic that comes to mind to meet a blog assignment, So can you talk a little bit about how you decided to introduce blogs into your course? Absolutely. And I completely agree with you, Rebecca. This didn't come on suddenly for me. There were two things that were happening concurrently. The first was I was experiencing a lot of frustration with my multiple choice homework assignments. When I started teaching the course, I had traditional exams and these multiple choice questions. And there was always a problem with the multiple choice questions. I'm not putting enough time into writing them well and generating the multiple questions for each topic that's going to create that ability to randomize selection for different students. And there was always a problem. You know, a student would email and say like, I think I got this wrong, but I don't know why. And we would discover that there was actually a problem with the question. But the second thing that was happening as I was becoming more and more frustrated with my homework assignments was that I attended a workshop about digital portfolios. And it was the kind of workshop where you go to several sessions over the day and you have a great choice. And this was one that I was like, well, that sounds interesting, but I'm not sure it's going to be useful for me. Just like you said, I'm not sure that's a statistics class, an obvious digital portfolio class. 
But I just kind of listened, and I loved the idea, and filed it away. They were giving examples of using it for writing courses or art classes to feature students' work. But eventually, this moment came where I realized that the two could absolutely go together and highlight the communication in my class that's missing from the multiple-choice homework questions. The students were not getting practice at communicating the impact of their results or the meaning of their results in multiple-choice questions, really. So the idea to create a space for them to not only report results, but to talk about them in their own words really made me excited. And I just immediately started developing this new assignment, knowing that I was taking a risk, but that I was really excited about it. And so as they're reporting it, is this something they're doing over the course of the whole project? Yeah, absolutely. So the way the project begins, the first week of the semester, I have students select their own data set of interest from some resources I provide. So an example of that would be like I send them to Kaggle as a first source. Kaggle.com has lots of publicly available data that people have put up on the site to share. And I'll have the students select a data set of interest and work with that particular data set all semester long. So they start by generating an interesting research question to them. And you know, I'm just asking them to put some context around. So some students will select something very serious. Last semester, some students wanted to work with COVID-19 data, which is so relevant and interesting. But others did not want to work with COVID-19 data. They wanted to work with something that was maybe feeling like more of a break from what we were experiencing. So a lot of students choose sports-related data. And whatever the students choose, they'll work with that data set. The intention is for them to work with that data set all semester long and apply every skill to that data set and report out. So there are a variety of different topics. And I also include in my syllabus that we should just be conscious that we're not all going to choose the same type of data. Some of us are going to choose very serious topics, and we should all treat the discussion of those topics in a serious way. And some of us are going to choose some things with a little bit of levity, like studying the winners of The Bachelorette and what their characteristics are like, and that we should appreciate the levity in that too, and just appreciate each other's choices. One of the things that I know that I've appreciated in doing projects like this in my class is the ability for students to practice that professional communication and have an audience. Can you talk a little bit about who the audience of the blog is and whether or not it's public-facing? Oh, sure. So the blogs are intended to be public because they'll submit the links to their posts as their homework assignment. And then we use Canvas as an LMS. So Canvas loads those assignments right up and I can look at them right away, which is great. But because the blogs are public, I also include some notes about that in my syllabus, pointing out that you wouldn't want to report personal information, for example. You can keep it as private as you'd like to in that you don't have to identify yourself as the author if you don't want to. But I encourage them to keep a professional tone, especially if they want to use this as a potential portfolio to share with future employers as evidence of their study and their work. And I tell them they can spend as much or as little time as they like making it look beautiful, some really beautiful images. Some students choose not to do that at all. It's just a plain white background with a title, and that's fine too. So I tell them I am their audience, but that they should consider that this is a public space and that they might have a broader audience. But I also include in the syllabus, if anyone is uncomfortable with the idea of a public-facing blog, they can request a different option. I've never actually had to offer that option, but I would offer like, let's create a Google Doc that is more like with chapters instead of a blog with individual posts. What platform are students using? Do they get to choose their own or are they all working on one platform? So I suggest WordPress because it has a free option. 
And because that's where I built my example blog, which I'm happy to talk about as well, and I can provide more detailed instructions and troubleshoot with them a little bit more easily. But if they want to choose Wix or something else that they're more comfortable with, I'm completely fine with that, so long as they know that I'm not an expert in any of these other platforms. Do you want to talk a little bit about that example you just mentioned? Absolutely. So the example blog that I built was sort of my first experience with understanding if this could work in the class. As I was trying to formulate what we would do, I was writing my own version of the blog, which later turned into a resource that could help students as an example. So I selected a data set about understanding diabetes and its relationship to age and blood pressure. And this is a very common data set on Kaggle. So I was writing. The goal is for students to take each topic that we learn in class, and there's about, say, 15 topics over the course of the semester. So if we learn to build a basic regression model, the students will then apply the basic regression code that we've learned in class, and they've seen a couple examples, and apply it to their own data set. So now I'm thinking about COVID-19, and I want to understand the relationship between, say, rates of cases and age groups, something like that. So they now have my example blog to go to and read and see how I structured what I did. And they'll say, okay, Katie built her model relating blood pressure to age, and I'm going to do something similar. And one of the reasons why I like creating the example is so that they can see where they're going. But I also really like that it serves as sort of a, a textbook support where we don't have a textbook in our class. So in the later, more complex topics, I also write a lot about how I'm interpreting my results and why, so that they have a little more support as they try to make those interpretations. And of course, if they're having any trouble making those connections, they can always come to office hours and ask questions. But those who have used the example blog as a support really report that it's useful. You mentioned that you don't have a textbook, but I've seen on your website that you have created videos that serve as a substitute for a textbook. Yes. As we've transitioned to online remote teaching, I had actually been very lucky to have had experience teaching online before. And I wasn't using those videos that I had used in the online version of the class in my on-campus class at all. But there have always been students not able to attend class for various reasons. You know, I'm an athlete and I'm going to be traveling, I'm going to miss class. Or I'm just sick and I'm going to miss class. So For lots of reasons, students have needed an additional resource, and without a textbook, that's always been a concern. So I wanted to provide those additional supports, but of course, as I'm sure you've considered before as well, does providing the video reduce my attendance in class? There's this constant struggle, but as I have been doing this online remote teaching, I think that I don't care. I just want to provide all of the resources so that every student can find this material in whatever way is easiest, most flexible, most accommodating to their lifestyle. And so that means putting out the videos in what I'm calling a digital textbook. And I can also refer to students even when we're on campus as an additional support if they need it after class. Have your students responded to working through this information in this way? And have they had the opportunity to look at each other's blogs and comment and do some peer feedback as well? That is a great question. I have not incorporated any peer feedback of the blogs into class, except this semester as we were doing the remote teaching. I was meeting in small groups. So the students would watch the skill videos from the online class, and then we would come together in conversation. 
And the only peer feedback that I've ever incorporated is having the students present their issues as they work through their blog posts during these small group sessions and then having others weigh in. And I found that to be so rewarding. It was just so much fun to have them identifying each other's problems. And there were lots of students in each group studying similar types of data. So one student is studying hockey. Oh, I'm also studying hockey. Did you find this? And so it really was fun to make those connections. So in that way, we have had some peer oversight. And I think I'd like to find ways to continue that kind of small group discussion about the blogs. But overall, the feedback on the blogs has been positive. The way that I know that is I'm looking at course evaluations. I would say maybe 40% of my course evaluations, students are mentioning the blogs in general. So not everyone by a long shot. And when they do mention it, it's in two ways in general. One, I really loved the blog posts. Or two, the blog posts were really hard, but I knew I was learning. And so seeing comments like those It really makes me feel like I'm achieving the goal of helping the students to get to a place where they're ready to apply the skill in a new setting. So that's the beauty of the blog, that it captures what we really want them to do, which is to get into their professional setting, ready to apply it to a new situation. Because they have my example blog, they have their example blog, they can remember how to do this given those skills. You provide students with a sample blog. But do you give them any other guidance on what they should include in their blog post? Absolutely. So in each problem description, so for each blog post assignment, I'll give a bulleted list of items that they should include. But in addition to that, because I probably go on a little bit in my bulleted list, I also provide a rubric. And Canvas as an LMS is really helpful in this way because I can include the rubric right in the assignment and tell students how I'll be calculating the points for each assignment. So I can have one point for including an image showing your results. I can have one point for correctly interpreting the intercept, etc. So the students will know as they're writing what are the things that I'll be looking for. But even better than that, they can also see where their blog posts needed improvement. So after it's been graded, and by the way, it's very easy to grade in Canvas because it can take me just a few minutes to read through a post and know whether the student has done the five or six checklist items in the rubric and just click and I'm done in just a few minutes per student, which is great if you have a large number of students, say whether it's 50 or 150, it's relatively quick and I'm very lucky to have the help of a TA with that. But the beauty of the rubric in Canvas is that the students can see which buttons I've clicked. So they can know, okay, I got a five out of six on this post. And where I wasn't effective was at describing what the meaning of the intercept was. So now I can go to tutoring or to office hours or talk to the TA about how I could change that for a project or an assessment. How many posts do they have to make as they're working through the project? So the students will work on a post for every topic over the course of the semester, which ends up being 14 topic-related posts. I also have them create a welcome post that's just, hey, I'm here blogging as their first assignment that just officially sets up their blog and creates their first post, walking them through the process. And they create one additional post about data and impact, I call it. So they report which data set did I select? Why? What's the potential impact? So I have them create a research question they'll be focused on through the semester and describe what impact it could have. Now, this is a business analytics class, but I think of it more like an organizational analytics So even if you're studying the bachelorette, you can position yourself 
to think about, okay, I work for Netflix and I'm trying to understand, is there a theme here? Do we need to have more diversity and inclusion in our bachelorettes or our bachelors? So what are the dynamics around the situation we're studying? And obviously, some things lend themselves more to a traditional business analytics context than others. But I want the students to know that any organization can have any research question. So you can create that context. And then they do a final post with conclusions at the end of the semester. Do you have a generic rubric that works with all of the posts or is there one for each of those stages? Great question, John. You're pointing out that there was quite a bit of setup (laughs) on the front end of this. So it was good that I was really excited about it when starting the experiment (laughs) because I had to build that example blog. I had to build each of the 17 total assignments and a kind of semi-custom rubric to each one. So each one includes the requirement that an image must be posted, for example. But we're studying linear regression assumptions. I'm going to have one point associated with each assumption that needs to be tested correctly. So there is a lot of customization. However, after creating, because these are so generic or agnostic to the material the student is studying. After creating that first batch of assignments, I've been doing this two years now, I have never needed to change it. And I really haven't had any issues with these assignments when it comes to this wasn't clearly enough to find, for example, because while the students do tend to become frustrated with open-ended assignments, they hear me say a lot of the time, business analytics is an open-ended kind of structure. It has a lot of art and a lot of science. And I can't answer the questions always in a direct way because your real life is not going to have direct answers to every question. And so over the course of the semester, I do find students tend to get more comfortable with this ill-defined nature, but they also have the support of specific rubrics to give them some sense of structure when possible. Would you recommend this approach to other faculty outside of the more traditional writing fields? Absolutely. But I won't pretend to know how. What I would say is that I encourage just hearing what other people are doing. Like I get so much value out of listening to your podcast and to Bonnie Stahoviak's podcast, just hearing what people are doing in their classrooms that's engaging their students. Because one of the reasons I created my own podcast was to generate more sharing because what happens in our classrooms is so opaque to others. As I told you, I attended that session a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago now. And I didn't really think it applied. And I know we all say like, oh, that's not for me or that's not going to work. I just feel like the more ideas we have circulating in our minds that, you know, quote, don't work. And the more issues we face on our own in our own classes about, especially now, how to engage students under these changing circumstances. I just feel like having a glossary of ideas that you can pull from and maybe adapt to your own class is so helpful. So I think there are lots of potential applications to this that I could see. In fact, I use this in my other courses. So I teach a capstone course at the senior and graduate level. And when we're not using proprietary data related to an organization, which I do in my senior capstone, like in the graduate course, I do have students select publicly available data. I also use the blog reporting structure. So I did need to develop a similar framework with rubrics. But it creates this sort of agnostic space where no matter what project you're working on, you can report out on that topic and all you need to do is share a link with me and then I can see your status update for the week. And you can really tell a lot by how students are writing about what they're doing. Now, in, say, a finance class where there's a correct answer to every question, I'm not sure a blog is going to be a perfect fit. 
But it's just really nice to have it as one option for reporting something because probably there's going to be a report or a reflection or writing assignment in some space where digital reporting is a really nice way to reduce paper, make our classes much more streamlined for remote delivery or flexible delivery as we move into the future. I do think it has a potential for tons of applications that I certainly haven't thought of yet, but I really like this delivery method in class. And you mentioned reflection, and that's something that's useful in any discipline, and that's one way in which it could be fairly easily integrated. You've made my life a lot more complicated this week because I'm supposed to be preparing my syllabi this week. We're recording this in late January. We'll be releasing it a little bit later. And when I saw the description of what you were doing, I was thinking, this is something I should try this semester. So I'm probably going to be trying to implement some of these ideas in my econometrics class this semester. Well, that's great to hear. I hope it works. I hope I can get it all together. Well, I'd be happy to share anything, by the way. Like if you want to see my example blog or if you want to see an example rubric or an example assignment description, I'd be happy to share any of those things. That would be very helpful. Thank you. It is funny that sometimes we get these really great ideas to try out these new things. And John and I certainly experience this frequently as podcast hosts. We're exposed to so many great ideas and then we have so many. But it's really great, even though that sometimes there's a lot of time involved in the setup of these things, they often play out in saving time over time. Absolutely. Presuming you stay with it, right? (laughs) Well, absolutely. And that's one of the things that has been the neatest for me, because one of the issues with the multiple choice questions is that they were so specific and there was so much opportunity to make a mistake missing a dollar sign or writing the wrong variable name. With the blog assignments... They're so open-ended. All I'm saying is apply using linear regression with two variables to your data set. How can I get that problem description wrong? I can't. So the beauty of the blog is that the nature of the description of an assignment is so open-ended, but so directly flowing from what we did in class that the students really know how to accomplish each step. I'm sure they also can see the practical application and how all of the skill sets not only from the statistics part of it, but also from the blog component of it or the digital reporting of it is practical for their future careers and things. And I think that tends to give students a little bit more buy-in to these kinds of assignments. I think you're right. And it achieves two other critical things. One of them is that it brings the sort of inherent motivation that we know is so important for student learning right up front. The students are choosing what they want to study. So they're going to have a lot more excitement. And honestly, I see that when I'm talking to them. I don't know anything about professional hockey, but when my students are working with hockey data and that's the area that they have greatest interest in, I see them light up when I ask questions about like, now, how did you make this interpretation? Why do you think this is related to this? So inherent motivation is a big deal. But the second thing that is a really fun byproduct is that having read what students are doing and having spoken to them in office hours, it brings up a ton of fun examples to talk about in class. So I might remember that Adrian is working on, you know, the COVID-19 data, and I can sort of bring that up casually in class. We found this weird thing that happened in Adrian's data set. And why do you think this is happening? Or what do you think is a good solution to this problem Adrian's facing? And we can talk about things that I had never imagined would come up in class just because of a quirky data set that was publicly available. I could see how that also puts students in the position of being an expert or a co-teacher in some ways, which I can see as being another motivating factor. 
Absolutely. That's such a great point because they're also experts in each other's conversations. So in the small groups that I was doing in the remote teaching in the fall, one student would say, oh, well, I thought of an idea for your data set based on our conversation last week. And even if you just watch hockey and you're not working on a hockey data set, but you really like it, you can be an expert in someone else's space. And clearly I can't because I'm upfront with the students about what I know and what I'm interested in and what I'm not. So I'm like, well, I don't watch a lot of hockey, so you have to help me understand. And that sort of puts me in a backseat in the same way it puts them in the front seat. Earlier, you mentioned that one of the motivations for doing this was that you wanted to move away from multiple choice tests. Have you eliminated multiple choice tests from this course? So, yes, I have, sort of. In the remote teaching environment, I have relied more on team projects and multiple choice quizzes. I was trying to model after folks I've heard on your podcast and others say that having smaller stakes quizzes is much more inclusive, gives students more of an opportunity to learn and to course correct. And so I was having these multiple choice quizzes. But I'm finding that the multiple choice quizzes are really an obstacle for students. And I am as frustrated as they are with them. They're doing great on the blogs, but they're not doing as well on the multiple choice questions. And I suspect it's because of the poor design of the multiple choice questions and not because the students don't know what they're doing. They couldn't do a great job on the blogs if they didn't have the skills. So as we head into the spring where I'll be teaching remotely again, I am planning to drop the multiple choice quizzes completely. That's not to say I'll never use multiple choice questions again. In my in-person class, I have used multiple choice questions or a multiple choice final as part of assessing students. But for now, it seems that the multiple choice quizzes really have not been effective. So this semester, I'm going to be grading students on their blog posts, team projects, and participation, which is just an interaction metric. Are the team projects the same as the projects they're reporting on the blog? Oh, great question. So when I assign a team project to students, it is on a data set that I've selected. So at the beginning of the semester, they are downloading a folder of lots of different data sets that they'll need for examples, working through the course skill videos that we've talked about. And I'll choose a data set that they might not have seen yet and write some questions that are somewhat open-ended, build a model. And I'll try to randomize across teams like which variables they should use in their model. So they'll all be predicting sales, for example, but they might have different predictor variables. So team one is going to choose variables one, two, three, et cetera. So they're all working with something a little bit different, but they're trying to end up in the same place predicting sales. And these are totally open-ended, but they get to work together and that helps. And I've also been using specifications grading in this class over the last semester, which has been a lot of fun. The students have started to appreciate it toward the end of the semester, though maybe I shouldn't have selected a semester that was so much in transition to experiment with that. Maybe it created a little stress at the beginning, but by the end of the semester, the students were saying things like, I really liked that I could choose my level of interaction with the course. The reason I bring this up is because I would require revisions in team projects. So every team had to score 100%, which of course is alarming to students until you say, there will be revisions required until you've scored 100%. So I want us to move past these topics, but we are going to make sure that we learn them. And I think that was a really neat experience for me to be able to coach students through finally getting mastery, which I have never done in class before. If a student didn't master a topic, 
we just move on and maybe there will be an opportunity down the road. But it really was nice to see students come to a place where they had achieved a particular benchmark. Were your collaborative assignments done during class time or were they outside of class? So this semester, I allowed students to have an entire day that they could complete the assignment anytime between 12 a.m. on that day and 11.59 p.m. I also encouraged my international students to do it during that 24 hours, but to make sure it was done during that Eastern time, 24 hours. And they could work on it during the class time, during the scheduled class time, because it was a day that we would have had class, but they didn't have to. So they had the flexibility to choose a time that worked for them. If it was late at night, great. If it was early in the morning, great. Or if it was during class time, that was fine with me too. We've really been enjoying your podcast, and you've mentioned this a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about how you decided to start this podcast? Absolutely. First, I want to thank you both for listening. I'm such a fan of your podcast and others that are similar. And just like the digital portfolio idea, the possibility of creating a podcast has been in the back of my mind for a while, listening to so many others like yours. So just as I have learned so much from hearing what others are doing via podcasts like yours, I just feel like I can't get enough examples of creative ideas that people are using to engage their students. And not just big ideas like, oh, implement a new grading system, but small ideas like, oh, I spend the first minute of my class engaging my students in this way, or I have this micro assignment that we do only occasionally, but builds community. And as I mentioned before, what we do in our classrooms can feel so opaque. It's really that I just wanted to contribute in a time when we can all use more sharing of the things that are working for us, and not every idea is perfect for every person, but just more sharing of what's working so that we have more options to choose from when teaching feels so different and so challenging to so many of us right now. And so the podcast is generating selfishly tons of new ideas for me, which even if that's the only thing that comes out of it, that's enough. But it's also doing the service of drawing attention to the great ideas around me at the University of Delaware this semester, and hopefully in a broader sense in the future. And so I just really appreciate being able to feature great ideas that are happening around me that might not otherwise be heard about, except in documentation of excellence, for example. And often those are only seen by a few people on review committees and sharing it more broadly, both within your campus and across the whole academic community raises the visibility of that work much more extensively. That's my hope, because the more people I talk to, I just feel so impressed by the exciting ideas that I'm hearing from different people. And to be able to amplify their voices, I couldn't be happier to be able to do that. Well, you've already talked about some really exciting things that you're working on, but we always like to raise the ante by asking, what's next? So next for me would be a second season of the podcast. I'd really like to incorporate more ideas from a broader range of places across the University of Delaware, but also bringing in others from outside just to add to the discussion. And also, I'm really thinking a lot, listening a lot to your podcast, thinking a lot about what the future looks like in my classroom. I will have taught remotely now for, this will be my second semester in the spring teaching remotely, and I'm learning so many things about how we can make learning more accessible to more students under the current circumstances. But I think a lot of it applies to what our future looks like. So I'm really not sure when we go back in the fall, I'm hopeful we'll be back in the fall safely, but I'm really not sure what my class is going to look like. I can't imagine that I'm just going to slide back into what I used to do. 
without incorporating some new things. And finally, I am expecting a baby in June. So there is a new chapter ahead for me that will bring some other fun changes. And so that is what's next. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. Definitely exciting times on so many fronts. Rebecca had that experience fairly recently. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, my daughter is three and a half now. But yeah, it was a great adventure and continues to be a great adventure. So I know you'll have a great time. Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to understanding all the things that are ahead and totally different. And maybe they'll also inspire some new ways of thinking about learning from seeing it through a different set of eyes. Definitely did for me. (laughs) I think it does for everyone who raises children. And actually, Josh Eiler, after watching his daughter learn and experience the world, it inspired him to study more about learning, which is ultimately the source of his book on how humans learn. I think I heard him talking with you about that on your podcast. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Katie. This has been a great conversation. Well, thank you both so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure chatting with you. Hopefully, we'll have you back in the future to hear more about the fun things you're doing in your classroom. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.